everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everyone, it's Brandon. Uh, just me today, no Brian. And we're going to start doing this segment as kind of an addition to our existing schedule. We're still going to maintain the schedule we've had, which is an episode every two weeks, alternating between a uh, full case, often with a guest, and our little lightning rounds discussions just between me and Brian. But I'm going to maybe pepper these in kind of sporadically on, on no particular schedule. And um, I'm going to call them turbos. T-I-R-B-O, which stands for the Intermittent Rantings of Brandon Odo. This is uh, something an old ambulance partner of mine uh, described his shift as resembling. But it's just kind of an opportunity for me to get things off my head. And in many cases, these may be based on uh, posts I've made to my blog, Critical Concepts, because I know that you all have uh, real attention deficit issues these days and can't seem to read anymore. So maybe you can at least listen to some of these topics. Or maybe sometimes things we've talked about on Twitter or just something that has come to mind. Educational topics, um, just kind of quick little chats about various things. So what I wanted to talk about today is something we put on the blog recently, and this is how to be tough as a clinician in the ICU. And you can mean a lot of things with that word, so let me explain. In this case, what I mean by toughness is the ability to to sort of deal with whatever comes your way. And imagine that, you know, you work in a unit, you're, let's say, the advanced provider there, and you normally take care of a few patients, and there are other people assisting on your team. But then you came in, and your boss said, listen, uh, COVID is going around, and everyone's sick. So everybody else on your team has called out sick, and there are, I don't know, 15 patients, and you have to deal with all of them. You're going to have to pre-round, manage them on your rounds, write notes, and then take care of them all day, and some of them are sick. Oh, and the phone is ringing. You have two admissions coming in. Um, Oh, and uh, someone just coded. Imagine that scenario, and then imagine yourself, and then the various people you know who could be in that position. Isn't it true that some of them, you think, well, that would suck, but I, I think they could handle that. And then some of them you think, oh boy, how did that go? And the implication here is not that some people have a limitless capacity for dealing with any amount of problems or workload. It's that some people's tolerance for it and their sort of threshold where it becomes, quote, too much is is higher. And I think that is true. So I wanted to take a look at what the factors are that go into that, because as you develop as a clinician, I think this is one of the important skills, maybe not that everybody needs, but I think if you're working in critical care or any of these sort of resuscitative fields, especially where you might be expected to have some degree of independence, um, you need to have at least some of this. People have to be able to trust that you'll sort of handle what comes your way, even if it has the sort of 
surges that are inevitable in the real world. So what are the things that make somebody kind of, quote, tougher or more resilient, though that's become a bit of a loaded word these days? I think there's a few, and let me get a few of them out of the way that are obvious. One is just competence. So the more training and experience you have, the more you can handle, because it's not as new to you. The first few times you do anything, any particular situation or clinical decision, it's just harder. It requires more mental bandwidth than if you've done it a hundred times, because you have to think about it more. It kind of drains you more, creates more decision fatigue. So competence kind of is the tide that lifts all ships. The other thing is that there may just be some intrinsic aspect of personality, and some people are just a little more suited to this than others. If so, I don't know if you can train that, uh, and we're kind of trying to focus on things you can change, so I'll just kind of leave that as an uncontrollable variable. But what are the things you can control? I'm going to give you three. One is stress inoculation. So this is the idea that, to some extent... Stress is just something you can train yourself to tolerate. There is a, a set point that you habituate to, and that is what you get used to. So if you are used to a certain amount of work, a certain amount of stress, then you're generally okay with that. And then kind of above and below that is where you see things as being too much or you know a light day. So somebody who's used to seeing 20 patients at a time and, you know, doing chest compressions with one arm while they put in a line with the other one and, you know, answer a call on speakerphone, it's going to be hard to phase that person. Whereas somebody who's used to things being kind of relaxed, you know, they see a handful of patients at once and they're going to feel close to being overwhelmed. Now, importantly here, it's not that one of those people has an actual higher limit for what they can do. Again, I think there is some point where everybody kind of has too much on their plate, and the whole goal for any of this is to stay under that. Uh, in audio recording, there's this idea, that as I speak into this microphone, if I get too loud for any kind of equipment I'm using, there's a point where I exceed the maximums and it, it, it clips. It creates a distortion. If I yell at you, you'll hear it distort. And so one of the important goals here is that I keep all my levels under that, that, that maximum so that I don't have that clipping phenomenon on the track because I can't remove that. And I think it's the same thing when you're dealing with kind of titrating what you can do in the ICU. You can do more, you can do less. That's all just kind of turning up and down the knob, but you need to keep it all under some maximum where things start to fall apart. You don't want to be there. That's when you make errors. That's when people get hurt. Patients get neglected. You start to kind of come unwound and, and yell at people. Or, I mean, you can legitimately just sort of break down. And, I mean, there are like psychological implications here. You don't want to go there. You want to keep things within your manageable range here. Now, people who are used to more, I think that limit may be at the same point, but they're more accustomed to working at the higher ranges of it. So between, you know, 90 and 100%, let's say. Someone who's used to being at 50%, they will feel like if they're at 90%, they're at their maximum. Somebody who's used to being at 90% knows that they're not. They know that they can go higher. I used to do CrossFit in the early days 
of the, the training program. And one of the principles of their workouts was that they're all, you know, high intensity, these short metabolic things that leave you feeling like you're about to die. And as sort of another topic, whether that's good for you or not. But I think one of the things you learned from that, and I think even that stayed with you if you stopped doing the training, as I did, is that you sort of knew what that was like, what it was like to exert yourself to that level. Because the first few times you did it, you would push what felt pretty hard, and you'd feel like you were about to die. So you would you would back off. You would slow down, and you might even quit, or you just wouldn't go as hard. And then, you know, you do it 10 20 times, and you realize, actually, I'm not dying. It sucks. I'm working very hard, but I can do this. I can even continue to do it. And there is a, my actual hard limit, my maximum is, is, is beyond this. And knowing what it's like to be at that level teaches you that it is something you can do. You may not want to, uh, but it's in your toolbox. And I think it's the same kind of in the work setting. If you know that it's possible to to do this much, then you can do it. You'd rather not, maybe. You, you aim for less. Maybe the care that you can provide is worse at that level, but you're still within that range where things are not breaking down. I will offer one caveat. The idea of toughening people up by subjecting them to stress and hard work is uh, certainly not new in the medical field. You hear about this a lot. I feel like this comes up a lot with residents who are worked tremendously and especially in surgical fields. And when people ask, why are you making these people work for 120 hours in a row and stay up for 50 hours in a row and do this and do that? And they say, well, it makes them tougher. And as you've heard, on some level, I think there's something to this. You get used to what you routinely do, but there's a limit. You can learn from suffering, but only to a certain extent. And beyond that point, suffering is just suffering. So there's a limit here, and I think people take advantage of this concept and use it to just give you more work. And I think you should be wary of somebody, including me, telling you, here is some bad stuff. Deal with it because it's character building. It's good for you to suffer. Maybe. But again, how much? What's the therapeutic range for this suffering? Because there certainly is one. Beyond which, not only is it not helpful, but it is probably bad for you for all the reasons you would expect suffering to be bad for you. So that's part of the reason why words like resilience have developed kind of a, a bad flavor in the medical world, because it's often used to defend some stuff that uh, is probably of questionable utility and maybe is even being used to garb something that it benefits other people and not the person doing the suffering. The more you're used to doing, the more you can do. But how do you manage things within that range? And that gets to my second point, which is having a degree of flexibility and the ability to prioritize and adapt and, and to be efficient with what you have. So obviously, the more efficiently you can work, the more you'll be able to do, okay? So this is where it behooves you to take time, even ahead of time, invest in making your processes more efficient, which may mean, uh, let's talk about writing notes, right? We spend a lot of our time in the clinical setting documenting things. 
So whether that means making your templates and your macros and anything you can automate better and more efficient so you can just knock out your notes, or whether it means honing your processes for procedures so they're faster. I'm not talking about things that are hard. I'm talking about things that take time, and often that's stupid stuff. Uh, suturing things, finding equipment, waiting on x-rays, whatever. And it's easy to look at your processes and recognize obvious major problems and obstacles, but this is more than that. It's looking at things that seem good enough but if you look hard enough, you realize, yes, this is a sticking point. This kind of always takes me a while and slows me down. And saying, yes, I can do that, but that's the point where if things get rough, that will be the problem. You want to make things as ideal as possible so that you have reserve. You know, if you are routinely writing notes up until the end of your shift or after your shift, good Lord... What are you going to do when it gets busy? You should be knocking that stuff out early in your day because on the day when two of your patients code and you have to be in the room resuscitating someone for three hours, now you can kind of have time. The other part of being efficient is being flexible. The care and the processes you use on a good day doesn't have to be what you do when things are bad. Now, that may sound like I'm saying you'll offer kind of worse care to some patients some of the time. And I'm kind of not saying that, although in a way, I, I kind of am. There is a range for what you do, which is acceptable. And you can play within that range based on the situation. For example, again, looking at notes. Notes can expand or contract to fill any amount of space. All right, they're like an ideal gas. If you have like one patient and they have some interesting medical problems, you can sit there and chat about it in a 10-page note and just get it all off your chest, and you can format it until it's super easy to look at, and you can dig through more and more of their history. All very exciting. What if things are nuts? Well, you could not do that. You can write a shorter note. You can write a really short note. Documenting and the ICU is actually more flexible than a lot of places because they're not the same billing requirements. You can bill critical care time for almost any sort of a note as long as it essentially reflects a critically ill patient. But I have multiple note templates, some of which are intentionally shorter and easier to work through. They're less formatted. They're set up to require kind of less, less manipulating and easier to, say, dictate through and just kind of blast through in a narrative. And if a patient is simpler or if I'm busier, that's the kind of thing that I'll do. And is it as good? In a way, no. I'm not giving things as much thought. Maybe I'm not having the, the clever insight I would have if I could sit there stroking my chin but there's not time for that, and it is still acceptable care. If you are going to use the same process for every patient on every day, you're going to give them good care, but you're probably going to neglect other patients. You know, three patients are admitted at the same time. They're all kind of sick. If you go through your leisurely process of seeing the patient, talking to their family, and reconciling their home meds, digging through the chart, writing a long note... For the first one, and then the second one, and then the third one, you're probably going to give great care to the first one, and the second one, everything will be late, and the third one will be dead by the time you get there. 
you need to have flexibility in how you do things. So you look at all of them, you figure out what has to be done now. This guy has to get innovated. This guy needs to be on pressers. This guy has to go to IR. You get things moving. And then you do the next thing that has to be done, which might be, you know, for one of them and then the other one. And then you kind of work down your hierarchy, not according to your usual process or chronologically or kind of what makes sense on paper, but according to what's most important. That's the flexibility you need to have. Somebody who is stuck doing the same things the same way every time may be very conscientious and detail-oriented and kind of crafts good structures in their day and in their care and in their documentation, but they cannot flex to deal with things. That's the kind of person who's at work five hours after their shift writing notes because they're the same notes no matter what. That's good in a way, but I hope you see how it is very limiting. The last tool here, I think, is understanding what your own weaknesses are, your vulnerabilities, knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at. And this is a good idea anyway. I think we should all reflect in this way. But I think it's particularly important when you are stressed. When you are put under constraints of of time and psychological stress, that is when you are going to strain your weak points. And where you fail is going to be at those points. So if you know where they are, you can watch out for that. If you ignore your weak points or pretend you don't have them, they're going to surprise you. You should know that, sure, I'm good at some things, but I know that when I'm put to it, when I'm under stress, or even on a good day, oh, I'm kind of forgetful. Sometimes I, I have a hard time keeping track of things, and they kind of slip by. Oh, and it's no big deal. But that's what you need to focus on. The things that you can deal with, compensate for, manage on an ordinary day, you won't be able to on a bad day. And so you need to realize that that is where you're going to have problems so that you can look for them. Oh, I know that I tend to forget things and lose track of them. So I know that if things are bonkers, I'm going to do that. I need to take extra care to write them down, double check myself, ask others to double check me, be aware of all the things that I'm likely to miss so that I at least make sure I don't miss the most important things. Be aware that when you are stressed, you tend to get short with people. You yell or you snap at folks and that you need to be aware of your tone and the things you say so that you don't damage relationships or, heck, bring that stuff home and damage your personal relationships. Whatever it is that you know deep down is your area of vulnerability, that's what you're going to express when things get down to the middle. So I hope this has been somewhat helpful, and I think it's things that are worth thinking about, again, ahead of time. None of this is any use to you in the moment. These are things to reflect on when things are okay and you can change or optimize how you're working, when you can think about how you're preparing yourself for the bad day, and hopefully become the person that can kind of deal with whatever through some combination of just being resilient to it, being flexible in how you go about your day, being aware of the places where you can break down, and you can kind of tolerate anything up to the actual hard limits of what are possible. 
Those, I don't know if they can be exceeded or changed for any particular person, but you can learn to work with what you have. That's it for me today. Talk to you guys next time.